Welcome to Transcending Comics, a podcast dedicated to trans representation in comic books, manga, and webtoons, both on panel and behind the scenes. I'm your host, Tommy, and today I'm joined by my literary expert, fashion consultant, and girlfriend, Ari. Welcome to the show, Ari. Hey, thank you for having me. Nice to be back. Uh, always a pleasure. Yeah, we just a couple weeks ago did our first episode together on my other podcast, Giant Size Violence, and I'm excited to finally have you on Transcending Comics. Yay! Yeah, I just realized that as it came out of my <laughs> mouth, too. I was like, oh, no, yeah, I haven't done this one yet. So thank you for having me, and nice to be on this one. So today we're going to be kicking off the first in an ongoing series of our uh, Invisible Community College book club series, where we're going to be discussing The Invisibles by Grant Morrison, one collected volume at a time. Now, Ari, for those who haven't heard an episode with you before, uh, tell the audience a little bit about you. Uh, yeah, sure. I'm an English major, uh, which I guess would apply to this particular episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I love literature, uh, especially classic literature, and I love the classic poets. I've actually even written a book which features many of the characters in here and all of my favorite classic poets as fairies, and I had to have each of them speak in their own poetic language. So this is this is kind of my jam here. So mm-hmm. glad I can help out. As soon as I saw Lord Byron and B. Shelley in this, I'm like, okay, this is uh, this doesn't have to just be my thing. Harry's gonna love this, and I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so shifting to the topic of work here, uh, mm-hmm. tell me what your previous exposure to Grant Morrison is before reading The Invisibles. Ooh, um, honestly, you could probably tell me that better than I could tell you. The first time I had heard his name was actually through you. And then I don't think I had any prior knowledge of him, really. Um, I might have read a couple, one or two at the most of his comics, or kind of known of something that he had done. Yeah. But um, I didn't really know anything about him until this until I met you. Had you ever come across like All Star Superman, or like the Arkham Asylum comics or anything like that? No, uh-uh. Okay, because yeah, he's been a fairly prominent writer for DC and other studios since the 90s. All-Star Superman is probably my favorite of theirs, since it's my favorite Superman run in general. Like, that's the book that sold a little teenage me on the fact that Superman could, in fact, be cool. And I, I haven't been, like, uh, someone who's, like, done a lot of deep dives into Grant since then. Uh, mm-hmm. But I have read, like, a bit of his X-Men and some of their other work as well. But really, I've been more of a fan of their appearances on other podcasts or their speeches. Like they've given some really cool presentations over the years. Like there's something of a chaos magician themselves. They have this disinfocon lecture from 2000 where they spoke at this uh, little conference that they got various figures and different like magic circles to come speak at. And it's so worth a watch if you haven't seen it before. Awesome. I will have to check those out. I love what I've seen of them so far. Um, and I love I love their accent. Um, mm. I'm a huge fan of train spotting and it always reminds me of like train spotting. <laughs> so. Now, I do know you're much more, you know, a lot more about literature than me and also a little bit about like various occult topics. And uh, since this is around the Invisible College, uh Can you Mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about what your exposure to that is or what you knew about the Invisible College going into this? Yes, it's the eternal rabbit hole. Um, Mm. (laughs) So nothing really, but I've researched it a lot. It started and 
like you've done this research too, but it started with the Rosicrucians. It was an actual college. Um, they have found references of it in uh, lots of different writings. Um, having said that, history is only what, you know, it's only the pieces that we find. And so piecing it together, and that's what I really like about the Invisibles, because it kind of has fun with those pieces. Because in the end, we don't really know anything about history. We just know bits and pieces from little pieces of papyrus and really old paper and records. You know, they did, especially around that time, they did keep a lot of records. But I know a lot about the Royal Society, and I'm fairly sure those are kind of interconnected. And I'm uh, actually familiar with the Invisible Community College. It's where I first learned to do Rubik's Cubes. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I actually majored for a while in the actual secret. But yeah, I couldn't <laughs> make it past the first final when I couldn't solve a Rubik's Cube in under a minute. And so, yeah, that, that's why it took me this long to get to the Invisibles. And it's been a sore spot for me. <laughs> did the invisible uh community college have like those little uh trailers that you had to go into <laughs> yes but like those were just the entry doors these were trailers that had secret basements because like, no, no one's looking for a basement in a trailer so <laughs> now i want to get into grant morrison and their relationship to the trans community a little bit before we dive into this book for those that are familiar with grant morrison and especially the discourse around this uh, you may have caught us using different pronouns for them so far, and this has been kind of a contentious topic of discussion for the last few years. Really, ever since 2020, when he did an interview with Gabriel Kennedy for Mondo 2000, this is where the discussion around Grant Morrison possibly being non-binary or genderqueer first kind of hit the internet. In the time since, this has kind of gone back and forth. Like, they've not by any means, like, gone back into the closet. It's been more of, like, them not being sure if that label quite fits them. Prior to this week, the most recent knowledge I had was that they were accepting any pronouns. And I think to a certain extent, they still do that. But I happen to be part of Grant Morrison's Substack. And this week, they've been doing a little series called Me, Myself, and They. Uh, it's a three-part series where they're diving into their relationship with pronouns and queer labels in general. And at the time of recording, only two out of three of these have been published. So I can't really give a comprehensive write-up of this, but I think I want to touch on this a little bit with each one of these episodes. And if I otherwise hear that they're not wanting us to pull from these, I'll make sure to edit them out. But in speaking about the interview they did back in 2020, Grant Morrison writes, I pointed to strides made around gender and sexuality as examples, saying that were I to behave and dress exactly as I did in the 80s and 90s, at a time before current terms had been coined, let alone entered the discourse, I would today be labeled genderqueer or non-binary. Comic book resources took this interview and then kind of treated this as grants coming out as non-binary. And they even said that they contacted them to confirm this, which is not true. No one reached out to them to confirm. But they've gone on the record to say like, they don't wish any ill will towards CBR. They've been very complimentary toward his work in the past, so they don't want to cause any beef there. But Grant continues, It seemed more important to wear my varsity badge with pride after reading online articles that talked about why it was regarded as important for high-profile people to stand up for gender nonconformism. When I read how many young people felt that their own experience was encouraged and validated by my decision to come out, I was moved. 
At the same time, I felt slightly uncomfortable, somehow bogus. I found myself cringing when people talked about how I'd finally realized I was non-binary and found the courage at last to speak out after decades of eggy confinement. This picture of someone who spent a lifetime unable to articulate who they were and what they were until someone else came up with a name for it is wildly inaccurate to say the least. Equally, when I see people online correcting others for using the wrong pronouns in relation to me, I'll admit I recoil. I very much appreciate their efforts, but I'm the last person to police anyone's use of language. I've been called much worse than he or him or her or it and threw back as good as I got. Mercifully, I'm getting too old to care now, and as a writer who regards words, the tools of my trade, as slippery shapeshifters ever willing to switch meaning and become their own opposites depending on who chooses to deploy them and in what context, the idea that any single word can hope to encompass the gnarly intricacies and challenges of living through the decades is one I struggle with. At the same time, I don't want my personal laissez-faire approach to encourage any laxity towards those for whom it really does matter and for whom the correct use of pronouns is a concern of urgent importance. As it turns out, I much prefer they to he, if I'm being honest. It feels more accurate for reasons I will delve into as we proceed. Now, for the record, there is probably going to be some slip up with both of us between using they and he pronouns. I ask that you give us a little leniency. Me personally, uh, I'll admit my dead name is Grant, so I particularly struggle with the use of they, them pronouns in this nature. Uh, That's by no means an excuse, but uh, I personally have a very strong association with he, him to Grant just in my own memories and talking about my past self with my family or friends. I've had multiple best friends over the years named Grant, so like it's a kind of key part of my personality that I'm working through, but uh, we'll try to the best of our ability to lean toward they, but it seems to me that Grant isn't going to terribly begrudge anyone for using he at the moment. And I love what they say about their age, too, because I am Generation X as well, and everyone is, you know, you always hear cis boomers or generation xers or whatever go on of like oh i don't get it pronouns but a lot of people don't think how kind of confusing and jarring it is for actual gender queer people our age and because we didn't grow up with any of this either and for the longest time we didn't know how to express our identity we were just kind of stuck in this mold that we didn't ask for And you get used to it, you know, and so people who are in their 40s and 50s, as I am, uh, the 40s, we uh, we're still learning, too, you know, and we're learning so that we can, like, be able to describe ourselves and be able to identify ourselves better than we were before. Yeah. And like, it's been something for me, like I've run into people correcting me on the use of their pronouns, like even when the most recent consensus was the use of any pronouns. And like, yeah, Grant just seems to have a very thick skin. And I really don't think they're too concerned with labels. And I'm glad that there's someone out there like talking about this unique relationship to labels, especially when they've spent so much time in the punk scene, like shirking them. And in the later (laughs) essays, they really go into detail about like how they kind of encompass multitudes of personas in themselves, Uh, not in like any kind of sense of DID or anything like that, but like they kind of bring a different version of themselves to the front in every circumstance. Like when they're writing, they channel a different version of Grant than when they're public speaking or when they're going to a show, like there's so much to them and there's like very intentional ritual to their way about 
all of these processes, whether it is like sitting down to write the invisibles for an evening or preparing to speak in front of a huge magic conference and something like I was really tempted to read a huge excerpt of the first two essays on this so far, but just didn't want to spend half this episode talking about Grant's pronouns because that's not the kind of podcast I want this to be. But the discussion does circle around to the invisibles quite a bit. And that's something I will kind of want to revisit as we delve further into this series, because like Grant's relationship to gender very much did shape their writing of the invisibles and Flex Metallo, their X-Men run, and work leading up to this day. So uh, I think they're an incredibly fascinating figure to look into this, especially as someone who neither accepts common labels, but has also injected a lot of important and early trans characters into DC Comics. Yeah, and I totally agree with you on that former point of a lot of people of my generation, especially in the 90s, you know, it was very much down with labels. I don't want to be labeled. And that is kind of a, you know, and I was in those scenes too. I was very much in the punk scene, very much in the braver scene. And labels and labeling yourself as something was, you just lived in the moment and you did, you know, like, and and there were a lot of drugs, you know, I don't think. Like, <laughs> yeah, they've um, talked about writing this on kind of a ritual amount of E and mm-hmm. yeah, like the, there being other substance involved in the process and like in the best way you can kind of tell. Yeah. Yeah. And E would be the, the pronoun drug. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that matter settled, I think it's time we actually jump into the book itself. Yes. All right. Let me go ahead and kick us off with a quick summary here of the invisibles volume one for anyone that wants to read along or kind of follow this as a book club. This is the thicker of the collected versions. So this is collecting Invisibles Volume 1, Issues 1 through 12. Behind the curtain of everyday existence, a vast and unholy conspiracy is at work, twisting and deforming reality to pave the way for colonization by hideous extra-dimensional powers. Facing this onslaught is a laughably small resistance movement scattered across space and time, a handful of subversives known as the Invisibles. The first 12 issues of the series follows a young punk in Liverpool by the name of Dane. After a run-in with the law, he gets sent to a reform school known as Harmony House, which is being run by a mysterious organization that's conditioning wayward boys into mindless drones living and dying at their service. Dane is rescued by a man in a leather jacket and gas mask named King Mob, who has arrived to recruit Dane into the Invisibles, a group of queer, eclectic rebels that's fighting a secret war against the elites behind Harmony House. Before joining, Dane spends a winter on the streets of London with a wise but crazy homeless man that goes by the name of Old Tom. He shows Dane the true nature of reality, introduces him to the forces controlling things behind the scenes whom the Invisibles are fighting against, and hides the secrets of magic in the subconscious recesses of Dane's mind. Dane's first adventure with the Invisibles takes them back in time to revolutionary France, through the creative works of the Marquis de Sade, and brings him face to lack of face with a fleshless serial killer known as Orlando. Our story ends with Dane, now going by his codename, Jack Frost, separated from the rest of the Invisibles and finding himself far in over his head. Now, Ari, uh, what were yes. your first impressions on reading The Invisibles? Really fun. My first impression was, like, it goes against the traditional arc of most of these stories. So being someone that's never gotten fully into comics just because like 
I, I usually pretty much know what to expect. I've always liked more indie comics like Love and Rockets and stuff like that. And so with this, it was really fun to see how much he avoided the the typical story arc of like I was expecting some huge battle or villain like in the Matrix or the Kingsman movies or something. So I really enjoyed how meandering it was mm. and kind of exactly what I was saying about history before of like the whole feel of it to me was we don't know anything, but we kind of have to keep battling anyway. And I, I love that aspect of it. Yeah, I love that throughout it, like Dane's never really getting any kind of direct answers to his questions, even in asking like, who are we fighting and how do we know like we're not fighting ourselves or we're not spying our, on ourselves and all of them are like yeah you just gotta kind of go with it mm-hmm. and it's a really good uh example of faith as well you just kind of have to do what you think is right even if you don't have all the details which you never will and there's also a little reference to like kind of queer clocking in a sense like they talk mm-hmm. about how like, there's <laughs> subtle signs that other invisibles can recognize others like some mm-hmm. for some it's a little blank white badge others i mean it's just probably some sign of like punk aesthetic or gender nonconformity. but yeah i think that's something a lot of us in the trans community can identify with that like newfound ability to like notice and come together with others that you previously didn't have when you weren't part of the community yeah and like i think of a bad religion tattoo in the 90s like you saw that you you knew you had a you had a friend you knew that person was cool like mm-hmm. oh the bad religion tattoo yeah you're cool okay i remember looking through this and like there's been a lot that's been drawing me to grant morrison in the last year like i read their biography super gods and that's where they talk quite a bit about like including a trans character or multiple trans characters in the invisibles uh namely lord fanny who i think is both of my favorite <laughs> characters And yeah, this being the trans comics podcast, like I felt like this was a seminal work I needed to cover, especially since there's been a lot of discussion about whether or not the matrix takes influence from this, but there are a lot of very noteworthy parallels between the two, even though their execution is quite different, but like people talk about trans allegory within the matrix. There's some debate over how intentional that is, but here, like it's, it's right there. Like they're very open about their trans characters, which like I think due to it being a major Hollywood movie, the Matrix couldn't quite have done that in the late 90s. Well, it's kind of funny too, because at that time I was really excited for the Matrix to come out because previously they had done a movie that I absolutely loved called Bound. And I was like, I really want to see what these people are up to next, uh, what they're going to make next. So I was reading all about this new project that they were uh, working on. And they did mention that they were working on something that was really inspired by comics. And I think they might have even mentioned the Invisibles. And, you know, I was just like a snobby teenager or something. It's like, oh, comic book. Eh." (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But yeah, it's kind of weird that that has come full circle. And here I am being like, oh, wow, it it is amazing. Yeah, like I remember a week before I read the chapters with Byron and uh, Shelley, like you had just been telling me about like that relationship between the two of them, as well as Mary Shelley and just that entire dynamic and like how big of a fan of 
all three of those people you are and like oh my gosh this is like what a synchronicity like i, I can't believe this like i i'm so glad i can show you like a comic I'm obsessed with that has your favorite things. And then like the Marquis de Sade is in here and like, they're pulling from the same story. Sayla was pulling from, and I know how much you love that film. <laughs> I do. I don't, <laughs> well, cats out of the bag now. Like, I, I yeah. usually keep that one on the back burner, but yeah, hey, I've got the magic but, editing. I can remove that if you want. No, it's fine. It's, it's a masterpiece. Yeah. Mm. But, uh, and I'm sure I will be talking about it more once we get to the disod points anyway. Mm. So, <laughs> yeah. Would you say this might be like the perfect comic for you so far? Yeah, I would say so. Um, there's like this and Saga have both been mm. like the perfect, and they're both two totally separate tones, two totally different moods. Because mm. Saga kind of like, um, I'm a military kid that loves cute things. So Saga hits that right there. Um, but uh, Invisibles hits my little bookworm nerdy side that I've always had and my, my philosophy nerd aspect of my personality as well. <laughs> so obviously, since apparently I'm just talking about Shelley and Byron like at the dinner table <laughs> randomly and stuff. Yeah, but like even the earlier chapters before them, like there were things I only caught later because of your literary knowledge that would have otherwise gone way over my head. Like oh. the first four issues is kind of the closest we get so far to like a hero's journey with Dane uh, mm -hmm. and like some of the almost Arthurian references that you helped me notice. <laughs> yeah, like there's a really great kind of like you're in a matrix moment in the fourth issue where uh, old Tom has Dane see the world through the eyes of a pigeon. And it's here that like it's revealed to him that like cities are a virus from somewhere else that kind of have co-opted humans to like work toward their establishment and their progress till they eventually leave this planet. Uh, and like it just has a really interesting take on like the reality isn't what you thought it was. And like, it left my mind spinning in more ways than one the following day is <laughs> I've expanded on before and not sure if I'll get into it on this podcast, but yeah, that really left a big impact on my subconscious going forward. But you were telling me that this moment where Dane kind of gets turned to a pigeon is yes. uh, kind of a reference to uh, once in future King and like part of King Arthur's training with Merlin. Yes. So yeah, it was kind of cute. Like I could, I was kind of reading it over your shoulder or whatever. And I remember just being like, oh, that's the sword in the stone section from uh, Once Upon a King by, uh, or um, Once in Future King by T.H. White. And um, which the Disney cartoon is also based on. But yeah, they do a really good job of it. It's been a few years since I visited that book, but I'm pretty sure there is a pigeon part that is almost exactly the same as it is in the book and then um there's a really fun part with ants and the part with ants actually really hits a lot of the things tom tells him as well that we're all kind of in a hive and like humans think they're great but ants are even better because they are united they they get stuff done whereas humans are not at all we're we're a mess we're a hot mess <laughs> now this i'd say is one of the first big parallels of like where we start seeing the matrix possibly pulling influence from here or at least the nature of them both being the world behind the veil stories or like uh, plato's the cave kind of stories mm -hmm. 
But some of the main ones we noticed, like, I mean, the young boy getting rescued by a mysterious bald man in leather that, you know, very punk inspired in the punk scene, telling them that, like, the world isn't what they thought it was. And there's forces that were uh, like, or there's a good and evil side of people behind the scenes. Dane learns martial arts from a trans mask coated black team member. Uh, in this case, it's uh, yeah, a really cool character named Boy. Because all of the characters, all of the names in this are a little like it kind of reminds me of Matrix's code names as well. But yeah, they're all like mm-hmm. a little bit you know, like kind of offensive, but like reclaiming power. And yeah, then just like the exploration of the different layers of reality and mental and social control or mental programming that like these good and evil forces are doing against each other. Like uh, really all of the later sections involving time travel, Shelley Byron and the Marquis de Sade are kind of about how we have all these poets and musicians and artists over the years that are trying to send out these blueprints to a better society through art. Meanwhile, the evil forces are kind of using society itself to take away the individualism and like can I exploit disadvantaged people for power and waking up to this and like once you're in these subcultures you become aware and you become part of the fight and like I've heard that there might have even been comics on the set of the matrix like there were issues of the invisibles laying around I don't know if I would go as far as to say that like it's a ripoff but only because I've also seen dark city and like seems like there's a lot of things that were also hitting the same notes as the matrix before the matrix yeah, and I don't really like the the ripoff argument, especially when you're talking about works like this, because works like this are completely giving respect to what came before, and they are openly part of the collective consciousness. They are saying, I am a part of this giant piece of consciousness, this giant story that keeps going on and on, because even within the Invisibles, um, because it's funny that everyone goes on about, oh, the Wachowskis kind of lifted that or whatever. Well, within the Invisibles, he takes 120 days of Sodom. He takes uh, Julian and Mandalo by Byron and Shelley. He recreates a whole bunch of literary pieces of works, but in his own way, in his voice. And I think that's the important part is the voice, because as much as you can be like, oh, they ripped off the Invisibles or whatever. The Wachowskis made it their own and in a really good way. I think you kind of have to really search to find a lot of those parallels because they very much crafted it in their own world and with their own voices. And their story is saying the same thing, too. Their story is, you know, we are what we've read. We are the stories that we've been given. And I think that's really beautiful. And as long as all of the stories represent that voice and their, you know, each own individual voice. It It's kind of like this fun communication that we do throughout history of like talking to each other through the future and the past of knowing all the same stories and kind of playing this fun game with them. And honestly, I personally see more parallels between the Kingsmen and the Invisibles. Like when I was reading the Invisibles, I kept getting a lot of like Kingsman parallels and being really glad that it was going a, another direction mm-hmm. from that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, nothing against the Kingsman, but yeah. As far as like the things that make this differ from the matrix, because the matrix has all this us against the machine, literally mm-hmm. with like the story on technology and in a way escapism. 
this, I feel like, does a really good exploration of, okay, while it's pitting artists against the establishment, I can tell that it's working towards saying like that those are both kind of key elements of the collective conscious. And like on the whole topic of a like good versus evil there, I'm 90% sure that the reveal is going to be that the invisibles and this nameless force they're fighting against are the same side. Yes. One of the early issues starts with King Mob watching this uh, puppet show uh, or like the shadow puppet show that's all being done by one person who's doing all the voices and moving all of the figures. Uh, and there's this quote that I'm like, this is this is it. This is the point of the book. His skill makes us believe that we see a war between two great armies, but there is no war. There's only the Daling. And like, I don't know if like this is going to be a big reveal to the characters as well. Like, I would like to think that King Mob and some of the others are like in tune to this, but I, I think that's at least going to shake Dane and maybe some of the others to find out that like it's all one thing, right? There, yeah, it's all one force. Uh huh. Yep. And the other thing I really like about that scene is. You can't have light without dark and you can't have dark without light. And I think the biggest difference between the Invisibles and the Matrix or even the Kingsmen is in the Matrix and the Kingsmen, it makes it clear what the battle is. The people fighting the battle know what the battle is and the audience knows what the battle is. And that's the whole story is knowing who they're fighting and why they're fighting them. Whereas in in the Invisibles, you have no clue. Like everything is kind of ambiguous, even the story itself. And and that's what I really like about it. It's very open-ended. Yeah, on that with like the battle not being clear, or at least like the war zone, uh, I really love that at least so far, the battle really only seems to affect the invisibles and the force they're fighting against. There's not like anything that's in the public eye. And I mean, that's right in there with the name. Like they can't be, blowing up city blocks and then still calling this the invisibles but yeah it's all in very weird secluded areas and in weird like mindscapes them projecting their consciousness back in time and through time and literature and yeah in like secluded windmills or in uh, well-guarded boarding schools behind closed doors like yeah this just this isn't the kind of fight that the public is even aware of like it's almost like something like the the repo man that while there is this mm-hmm overarching weird sci-fi plot happening in the background like that doesn't mean you the average person are going to be anywhere near it like you're going to be living a regular life and it's not going to involve you yeah the repo man uh repo man came up a lot in my mind with this of the where all of the supernatural fantasy stuff is almost kind of in the background and i and i love that normal life is still happening and love and rockets is a lot like that Mm -hmm. too And one thing, I just kind of thought of this, but one thing to remember, too, is all of these works were written during the Cold War. Mm. And the Cold War was very similar. Like, there was no, like, my parents fought in the Cold War and everyone's like, oh, who cares? Nothing happened. But it it all happened privately, invisibly. And that's what it was kind of like. You didn't know who to trust. You didn't even halfway know what you were fighting for half the time. Uh, but it was a very hidden war. And also parallels, you have the like wise and homeless person. Like old Tom in this seems to very much be the Merlin figure that knows how to navigate this and like real world magic. And uh, the homeless character in Repo Man like is the one who mm-hmm. kind of sees exactly what's going on and knows how to fly the spaceship in the end. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, these could 
easily both take place in the same universe. Like there's nothing keeping Repo Man from being in the Invisibles or vice versa. Mm-mm, same punk aesthetic. I love it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so moving on to the second arc, though, like this is where I'm like, OK, this isn't just me diving into the realities and what you think it is. Psychedelic journey. Uh, now it's like diving into literature that I am woefully underread on. And honestly, I'm so thankful that like you were around to elaborate on so much of this because I mean, well, I'm all about hearing about secret societies and like Rosicrucians and all that to have a better appreciation of like all the literary references going on is really increased my enjoyment of the book. Thank you. Yeah, I really got into it reading Umberto Echo, and he's really obsessed with um, secret societies and how much of history we really know and who's controlling things and why. He gets a lot into the secret societies and that that was kind of how I fell down the rabbit hole. And then I will always watch one of those goofy history channel things about it or whatever, you know, and then go on Wikipedia or do actual real research after that and see because, you know, history channel. <laughs> yeah. Part of this really made me want to like watch some of those documentaries just to like get some kind of greater understanding of these. But I know that what's going to stick in my brain is going to be the BS History Channel documentary and not the real version. Yeah, only use it to know what to Google. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Mary Shelley makes a reference to Rosicrucians in this area, talking to this like mysterious figure that's showing up through time. Mm -hmm. And like that was a new term for me. So I look that up and uh, for an initial Google search tells me that it's some kind of old secret society. And then uh, going down a YouTube Wikipedia rabbit hole, I later realized that, yes, this is indeed a secret old order. Yeah, (laughs) as some invisible college ties, but it's all very homogenous like everything else i've learned like even going back to the pythagoreans just like okay Mm -hmm. secret societies i think some would call this like the recurrence of like the quote-unquote one true religion of uh, using these hermetic principles that transcend secret and religious beliefs and like the the secret knowledge that's getting passed through this Mm -hmm. overarching invisible college so like i don't know it's one of those things that every time i find a new one of these terms i feel like i'm seeing a lot of the same information but it's only reinforcing my enjoyment of the invisibles because like in this it's not one organization in one place that like is carrying this knowledge it's like weird artists and outcasts all across time and space yeah and one thing to remember too about the shelleys and byron and all of them and even Desaad too that a lot of people kind of forget because we just kind of think they're known because they were geniuses and they were you know they were brilliant they wrote brilliant works but they were all Nepo babies. They were, um, their families were powerful and their families had been controlling stuff for a long time. The Wolfen, uh, Wolfencrafts, the Shelleys, and yeah, Lord Byron came from a really powerful family as well. And Byron's progeny would go on to invent the computer. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, Ada Lovelace, like, yeah. Favorite computing fun fact. <laughs> I mean, you can't tell me they weren't in some sort of secret society themselves. So, I mean, it's pretty certain they were. (laughs) And like, I don't know if they quite touch on the nepotism, but they do sort of touch on that uh, sense of like being sheltered with these old timey poets. Like really Mm -hmm. the whole narrative around B. Shelley is like around like them having this philosophical debate of like, what is paradise? How do we get there? Like, is it is paradise built on human suffering? And then they lose their daughter, like their infant daughter and having their wife come visit them. 
and like you just see that like this is that dose of like the hideous nature of reality finally settling on the artist and realizing like oh it's so easy to talk about this when we're this far away and just like getting to enjoy ourselves drinking wine on the beach or mm-hmm. hanging out in a gondola yeah and go grant morrison too for being able to put a beautiful poem into a graphic novel without it being like the illustrated Moby Dick comic or something (laughs) and really cheesy and something they give you in high school. And you're like, what? Um, He did that really well because uh, that whole section represents the poem and all of the themes of the poem, Julian and Mandalo by Shelley. Yeah. And that's something I didn't know until my second read through of this volume. And I, I really appreciate Grant like being able to expose me and a whole generation of others to this. Cause like, yeah, I mean, I know about Lord Byron, but like, I didn't know about Mary Shelley's husband and like his literary contributions. And like, I never would have come across this poem if it weren't for Grant Morrison turning it into an awesome vertigo comic. Beautiful. But going through your other favorites, like mm-hmm. also in this section, we see them go back in time, meet the Marquis de Sade, and then in their attempts to get back to the present or like project themselves back to the time travel windmill that they're all like (laughs) meditating in, they get split up and King Maud, the Marquis de Sade himself, and boy, all find themselves in 120 days of Sodom. And this is another thing that like, this is probably going to be the extent of my knowledge of 120 days of Sodom because like I know that it's a pretty famous story. I know that Salo is inspired by that. And this was about as much of that story as I think I can take. I did not come away with this thinking like, oh, yes, I want to spend more time watching terrible human acts of cruelty for any longer than what it takes to get through this. And at least this has some kind of like silver lining about finding your own escape within your mind, right? Creating the exits within your own creative endeavors. Yeah, I was really glad he summarized it really well. And I wouldn't wish reading the actual book on on anyone (laughs) unless that's your thing of course i guess and that's why i love salo too because i think it does it does all of that for a reason it has a very big point about anti-capitalism um and it's raging against capitalism the whole time it's just using this text to do it but the original text is it's a lot um, again, I wouldn't wish to upon anyone, but it was cute. I remember when I was reading that section and, you know, I knew you had already read it. I was so tempted to be like, oh, well, you've read this. You can you can watch Salo. And then I was like, no, don't don't do that to her. Don't make hmm. her watch Salo. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. You're fine. <laughs> yeah, but we do transition from that to then one of my big hyperfixations the last year or two with uh like they go to an SM club and something closer to the present and we see them kind of dive into the psychedelic inspirations of the story and like even referencing psychedelic movement figureheads like Leary, Kesey, McKenna. And I'd almost call this like ahead of its time in diving into that. But like, I mean, those guys are all from the 60s. So I, I guess ahead of its time is weird, but it feels like this has become a lot more relevant, at least compared to where the discourse around psychedelics is now compared to where it was in the 90s. Yeah, I will say that in the 90s, though, there was a huge Timothy Leary resurgence. Uh, Jacob's Ladder had just come out. Mm. And so within my lifespan, I would say the psychedelic resurgence happens like every decade. Mm. Um, But it's kind of more 
well-informed every time it resurges because now in this resurgence, we're using, you know, we're applying it to therapy. We're applying it to real things. And I think that would make a lot of those guys in the 60s, like Casey and Timothy Leary and um, all of them, think that would make them really happy. That was kind of the vision I think they originally had. Uh, whereas the 90s was just like, it looks really cool. You know, like, <laughs> I'm going to yeah. sit and watch Aeon Flux for like six hours on acid or whatever. And I mean, I was like six or seven when the 90s ended. And dang it, those prudes in the 90s were not ever offering me psychedelics. So I didn't get to, you know, tune in for that round of the resurgence. Mm. They were certainly offering me them. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that was more the age, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'm really looking forward to seeing that get expanded on later because, like, I know it's going to be a common through line in the book. And I mean, for those who haven't already, like, if you're listening to this podcast, I very much recommend you check out, like, How to Change Your Mind, both the book and the series on Netflix to, like, get a good understanding of the psychedelic movement through the years and the origins of these substances. Like, honestly, this podcast might not exist if it weren't for psychedelics since it was uh, rather adventurous acid trip that incited an ego death that led me down to the realization that I was trans. And you can hear about that on my coming out episode of uh, Giant Size Violence. But I'd say that's kind of my uh, Catmandu experience if I'm comparing it to like all the stuff that's inspired Grant Morrison's work. Because I know that a lot of what he's writing about here is all based on maybe not technically a psychedelic experience because he had only smoked hash. But yeah, he went down to Kathmandu, uh, did this kind of did this kind of spiritual rite of passage and he felt himself get kidnapped by aliens and they revealed to him the nature of the universe and like the forces behind things and that we're all one person and like that they wanted them to put this into their comics and their creative work. And so like, I know that this is going to be something that we get to see expanded further and further on in this. And that's been one of the major things that's made me want to read invisibles is I want to see the visual representation of this trip that I've heard him talk about for like over 10 years now. Mm hmm. And yeah, it really well represents drug culture as well. And something else, the, a lot of the, and just the book itself, but a lot of the psychedelic stuff too. And I know you haven't seen it, but it reminds me a lot of Legion as well. And the whole time reading it, I was kind of wondering how much of an inspiration this was to the, to the writers of Legion. Hmm. I don't know if Grant ever worked on Legion themselves, but like, mm -hmm. I know that throughout their work they have a lot of uh, explorations of people with multiple personalities like i know they brought that into the doom patrol and that was like one of their most long-lasting contributions to that series and like it goes back to their original comic that they just published in a local newspaper of captain clyde like the villain of that is someone with three different personalities and three different superpowers so and i think that says a lot about the writer themselves because they <laughs> they don't claim to have did but they certainly do explore the nature of having multiple personas to tackle multiple different problems, almost like having an internalized Justice League or X-Men to go like navigate the world. And I'm really happy that we're talking about that more outside the reference of DID, because everyone wants to put themselves in a mold. And we act like DID is such an extreme like thing. But at the same time, nobody is just one thing like we all kind of have gone on so long thinking that we should be but we're all so multifaceted and i'm really glad that that is being like observed more and attributed to our identities more i feel like this is 
found both in Grant's works and like in a lot of discussions about transness of like, what is the self and are we the same person as the previous versions of ourselves? Like in Abigail Thorne's coming out video on philosophy tube, they, they talk about like experiencing something at the age of 10 and then recollecting on that 10 years later and then thinking about thinking about that another 10 years later. And like, is this the same person in each time? Because each one has a very different perspective and relationship to these continuously changing less and less accurate memories. And I know Grant's described the self, like if you step out of time, like outside of the fourth dimension, that the human shape is like a giant centipede that like, I'm the version of me that entered this room. And there's like a version of me leading up to now and a version of me leading until the point of my death and going all the way backwards to the point of my creation. And like that, this long centipedal creature that encompasses every moment in one's life, like that's the actual whole, or like that's the being that like is grown in time that like is all connected to the rest of the living things on the planet and is like this one living universe that like needs time to grow or like is placed in the third dimension to grow. It's all very like big concept metaphysical stuff, but like I, I love listening to them talk about it just as much as I like seeing them put it in their comics. Uh, yeah, same. And think about how many people you know who have had a conservative phase of their life <laughs> as well as Oops. a liberal phase of their life or a libertarian or all of them. Like so many people go through different realizations and yeah, we're just really multifaceted. And I think that gets ignored. We are constantly growing, constantly evolving, constantly learning. And that's another thing people buck against. People want to stop learning or just kind of like be an autopilot at a certain age or think they kind of know everything that they need to know. But no, you learn and you evolve every second of the day. And that caterpillar metaphor is a really good way of showing that. And before we move on from this section, I really wanted to say this section starts with one of my favorite parts of the whole book which is the guy in the bondage mask going on about when times were good, when times were simpler. <laughs> yeah. Nice talking to you. Sorry if I got carried away speed, you know, <laughs> gotta go. <laughs> yeah. all, like, this mistress is off panel. like telling him to shut up and like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Obey, like shut up. Yeah. Yeah, no, this this very much feels like the the guy with hyperfixations at the party that like has to tell everyone their special interest and I relate to that guy. So <laughs> we <laughs> all was, need to have a bondage mask that someone makes a sip up once in a while. He was fun. I think he's like one of, like my favorite part of the book. <laughs> now, this whole section, like with the cutaway scenes to Byron and Shelley, like mm -hmm. especially since they never directly interact with the invisibles, when I first read this and like came away weeks later i was thinking back I'm like wait what was the point of those scenes and it wasn't until i reread them that i finally got like the connective tissue of like where those fit in with the rest and maybe they do actually meet the invisibles in a later volume but uh did you feel like you got that your first time around like what they were doing with those scenes yes sort of um so and i was i was gonna mention this to you earlier uh in the week but then i was kind of like do you just want me to talk about it on the podcast? So it, you know, it was kind of like of the mm -hmm. moment. But uh, one big thing that we haven't really talked about yet is there have been there's multiple Arcadia references in the book, and Arcadia is a really big theme 
of the book. And so it discusses that Arcadia is like paradise or utopia. But one thing that it doesn't really hone, like I think it briefly mentions it, but Arcadia specifically is, when you think of Arcadia, you think of like shepherds and lower people. You don't think of like, and the shepherds and stuff would tell tales about kings and queens and all that. But even in the little, um, oh, not a sketching, even uh, in postcard. The, yeah, even in the postcard that they have in the book, it, it's shepherds um, mm-hmm. all kind of hanging out. And so they are the lower class. And so that's kind of where the book excels for me, too, is it focuses on the lower class. It focuses on the soldiers like King Mob and Dane and all them. And Dane is definitely from the lower class. And meanwhile, you see the higher echelon kind of above it all, totally separate, kind of discussing these grand matters and stuff so aloof. And they're almost searching for Arcadia because they're already above it. They're at a certain like status. So that's what I think that kind of represents. The Byrons and the Shelleys, even though they can write beautiful poems, they can like get into the human condition, all of that, they'll never be able to kind of know the true Arcadia or the true dreams of the lower class. And a really huge thing that is going on during all of this, which really hits home those themes, is the French Revolution. And so you have all of these rich aloof people getting their heads cut off and then in the other panels you have Shelley and Byron being so depressed and melancholic but at the same time they're really rich and they're living their best lives you know (laughs) whereas the invisibles and the people in the French Revolution part they're all just trying to survive yeah and for a little context for those who haven't read, this image of Arcadia or the famous painting is like kind of the mental totem that the Invisibles use to like project themselves back in time. Or I guess it's more of an anchor that like roots them to the present. So that's the uh, postcard of Arcadia we were mentioning earlier. But I noticed upon rereading this that like that little form of mental escapism, both like with the literal anchor and then through all the artists in these chapters, like we're seeing this recurring theme of like, Arcadia only existing in the minds, or I guess only being able to create these means of escape or these worlds of paradise that aren't built on worlds of suffering through worlds of words or mental imagery. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, yeah, they can't be built without being built on the backs of human suffering. So yeah, it's kind of a form of mental escape. Uh, we see it after Shelley loses their daughter and like that they're writing and like trying to commit all these philosophical conversations they've had with Byron to some kind of poetic verse is their only escape from like the suffering they're feeling. Like we see it with Byron and like putting their own suffering and like trying to put down the others that have like literally put him in prison or have turned mm-hmm. the other way as people are literally dying of plagues and not even being given their own bed to die in trying to t- cut them down to size of it with 120 days of Sodom. And the one other literary reference that's going on throughout all of this that I thought you might be able to expand on is like what's happening to the invisibles in the real world with uh, this serial killer, Orlando, like coming into the windmill and starting to like cut up Dane bit by bit while they're mentally elsewhere. Uh, and you would thought Orlando might be a reference to some other literary work. Yes. So 
not a hundred percent on this because he doesn't necessarily double down on it. But if you are really into literature and you hear the name Orlando, that is Orlando by Virginia Woolf. It is a book about, and it was way ahead of its time. Any queer person that uh, was in literature classes or, you know, took English in college or whatever. Oh, your ears perked up once this book, like I still remember when I first read about it in literature class of like, I have to read this. But so Orlando is a character. It is actually based on a woman that Virginia Woolf knew her lover, actually. And she took this person and in the book, Orlando is like a royal from um, like a duke or something from like the 1600s, maybe 1500s, I think like 1600s. And they realize they are eternal and uh, they live through the centuries. And through this, they actually change gender. They actually become basically gender fluid is what we would call it now. I, I believe they can go back and forth. It's been a minute since I've read the book. And there was also a movie with Tilda Swinton in like 97, I believe. Mm. And yeah, I feel like that plays in a little bit with Orlando being from this like fleshless race of killers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like, yeah, they're kind of transcending any physical form and like taking the flesh of people they kill in the present. Uh, yeah, just horrifying people. and. I think one of my favorite moments is like they've killed some family of some poor soul whose skin they've taken. And there's some uh, pop goes. The weasel is playing on like a record player in the family's house. And he's just on the phone. Oh, the music. Yeah. That's just to like, I don't know, enhance the scene. (laughs) He's just very, (laughs) well, yeah, I gotta do like the creepy horror movie thing. Of course. Mm -hmm. If that is where he got it from, I can't imagine what else he would be referencing. Hmm. Um, then I love that he turned it into a villain, this evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, because the, the point of the book wasn't to glorify Orlando. It was mm-hmm. kind of to show what you would do with all that extra time. And I like that this character is completely evil and just has no clucks to give. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I really like what he did with that, if, if that's what they did. No. Before we like touch on the last couple issues of side stories and wrap up, I did want to kind of talk about each of the individuals themselves, uh, especially oh, yes. since we've hardly gotten to talk about our favorite of them, which is, of course, Lord Fanny. Yes. They're just like this amazing witch woman that totally saves Dane's ass more than once and like just puts up with all the awful shit this terrible teenager keeps throwing her way. <laughs> She is just like such a strong character and especially for one of the earliest representations of a trans woman in Mm -hmm. comics. I'm like, okay, this lady rules. (laughs) Yeah. And it really hits home what a lot of queers kind of know, which is especially a lot of older queer people, somebody who's throwing rocks at you one day, you'll probably see them at a club or something years down the road. Mm -hmm. You know, like I have had so many people be hostile and abusive to me about my being queer or trans or whatever, only to see them come out a few years later. And so you kind of have to have that knowledge and, and 
just give kindness to everyone, give mm-hmm. support to everyone and let them know how wonderful of a person you are. And Lord Fanny represents that to me a hundred percent. And I think she's a really good role model. Mm-hmm. Like I, I look up to Lord Fanny. I respect Lord Fanny so much and I hate Dane. <laughs> yeah. I've only read one issue of the next volume. So I know a bit about Fanny's backstory. So I know that this initial headcanon isn't true, but like since Lord Fanny and Dane are the only blonde members of the team and they have some similar like character structure, I was really hoping there's going to be some reveal that Lord Fanny is Dane for the future. Which same. A hundred percent same. Yeah. And I don't know, I'm still holding out hope that like Dane gets some kind of queer awakening later on or just comes to realize how much of a piece of shit he is, especially to Lord Fanny. And I like that the others like, just kind of treat him as a stupid kid as he's doing this like when they're doing the meditation time travel circuit like i don't want to mm-hmm. hold hands with that thing i was like stop being a fucking idiot dane and like <laughs> it just keeps going and, like no one pays any mind to his little bigot points here and there and that's what like that really heeds back to what we were just saying about the whole grant morrison identity thing um of the kind of centipede Mm-hmm. Uh, idea of like that's one thing we don't think of with young people a lot we we classify them as this person that we see but we don't see yet what they're going to grow into i was a com- i mean you've heard about me when i was a kid or when i was i wasn't i was annoying i was a little <laughs> snob i was like i was so snobby and above everyone and everything and my, i'm a hundred percent not that person anymore and so when you are dealing with young people you do kind of have to be like that and just have a lot of hope um Mm -hmm. and try not to roll your eyes and also yeah on king mob like i do like them as this very clear self-insert character for Krant, even modeling king mob after themselves and like i love when i get to see a writer do that in like an interesting way of like put putting the most badass version of themselves into the book Though this is also the example of like why that's dangerous because apparently some pretty bad stuff happens to King Mob in a later volume, and Grant started noticing the things that were happening to this character happening to Grant in real life. Like King Mob gets kidnapped and starts getting tortured, like injected with this flesh eating virus, and within three months, Grant found themselves in a hospital, and like there was some kind of virus that was like eating away the inside of his face, and it wasn't until like he tries writing his way out of it. And like one of the characters turns out to be, I guess some kind of like uh, some kind of healing shaman and a free King mob that like all of a sudden this mystery illness that like they couldn't figure out and didn't know what to do, like starts to clear up and Grant's health improves. And I know he has all these other examples of like this three month cycle of them putting something into the comics and then that somehow like manifesting in their life months later. Like, you know, other writers like Philip K. Dick have talked about similar moments. Oh, yes. Like, I think this is where Grant, like, gets a lot of the Grant gets a lot of the points on magic that they talk Mm -hmm. about, or like using art as a form of magic. Attack of the sigils. Yep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, uh, let's see. As far as other characters in the group, uh, we've got, uh, dang, I always forget the name of the cute one. Uh, Robin. Robin. Yeah. Yeah. Robin, who's, I guess, like a bit of a, clown or like jester style figure we still don't really know much about her except she's like the psychic of the group i'm not even sure where she is in the realm of queerness but she's 
hella cute and <laughs> really excited <laughs> to get, see her backstory someday and get more of her. Same. And, yeah, and then we have Boy, who's kind of the trans masculine figure of the group and like yeah between that and lord fanny i love getting the like okay we're gonna flip these terrible labels on their head and take the power out of them and we see maybe the most extreme version of that in issue 10 i believe now the last three issues of this volume are all kind of standalone stories about different characters issue 10 being about a character named jim crow who (laughs) is he is an invisible part of their own group uh, and they are a black man but they are also like kind of coming after one percenters that are exploiting the community and like the character is really badass like i maybe feel a little uncomfortable reading this in the year 2023 and seeing a black character named jim crow like i grew up knowing dumbo was messed up so like i (laughs) i wince a bit but it helps for me knowing this isn't being written by an american white person and also knowing that like everyone is kind of getting this treatment like you know boy like retaking their name lord fanny or like dane is very opposed to taking the name jack frost just due to like i think some childhood trauma Mm -hmm. and so like at least every character is getting the same treatment it's not like this one marginalized figure is getting this awful label thrown at them it's hard for me to even touch on this because i'm southern and white so like but a lot of it, what I kind of, you know, and it's not a, it's not a bad issue. It's mm. kind of like, it reminded me of a very racially charged, like Tales from the Crypt, mm. which is extremely a compliment. But the other thing in Tales from the Crypt falls in this little corner too, but it just really read to me as the kind of 90s edge fest that was going on everything was so edgy and people were really pushing their limits or should i say white people were really pushing their limits Mm. of what they could do and say and there wasn't really i mean you could get away with pretty much anything in the 90s and you know it's it's a good story it's the evil white people get theirs in the end and he's a really cool badass character mm-hmm. um so it works but be prepared for mm-hmm. it yeah um <laughs> it's just really 90s it's like when you go back and watch your favorite movie from the 80s or the 90s or something you're like oh i didn't remember that or like watching clueless or something and be mm. like oh wow she it ends with her falling in love with her stepbrother. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, what I like about these last three issues is they're all giving context for things that have happened earlier in the series. Like, we just got a few references to Jim Crow as a member of the Invisibles that King Mob's troop uh, interacts with fairly often. Um, issue 11, then, is this uh, story following, like, the villains or more like the British royal family specifically and showing their offerings to this weird eldritch creature that may like have like have been given one of the royals may have given birth to them. It's a little weird and vague and intensely creepy, but it also shows this ritual that they do of like getting all these people that would be seen as not the invisibles, but like in the invisible casts of society, like getting various homeless people and like wayward kids and like just releasing them and chasing them down as part of a hunt. Like we see them doing this in the city early on and like Dane and old Tom have to hide from this. Uh, and now they're doing this in the woods and 
Like it's all kind of part of their sick games and also part of the sacrifice rituals they're doing. And just like gives you a good glimpse into like, what are these forces actually that they're fighting against? Mm -hmm. And yeah, it really harks back to the class division that I was kind of talking about earlier too. And also it's a very similar rabbit hole to the secret societies too, Mm -hmm. because all of these Royal families are essentially inbred. Um, I'm sure you've heard the thing of like every U.S. president has been related to the queen somehow or part of the royal family through like a very big family tree. But yeah, so like all of the royals are inbred. So there's always been stories of monsters or whatever hiding in there that they could just couldn't bring out, which kind of is, you know, like offensive to people like there are people that are i i don't want to say inbred but yeah it happens it's a thing that happens and no you don't turn into a giant monster or whatever but there have always been stories and theories that there's like hidden royalty out there or whatever so it's kind of down that similar rabbit hole that he's he's picking from with the secret societies the the royalty all of that um and i liked it he he did a good tailing of it and it actually it really broke my heart at the end like it and it really shows the hopelessness mm. of being lower class mm-hmm yeah, like the point of view character is this person that's kind of working for the bad guys, but is something of a double and or triple agent. Thinking back now, I think they might be the one that like is sort of the leak that's allowing them to track down the invisibles. And yeah, like seeing them like use that against them, like basically they've subjected themselves to so much suffering. And in the end, it's not worth it. And they're killed by their own daughter that they thought they were saving. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's a tragic story, but like it kind of lets you know, like, what is it that these people are fighting against? And like, why are they fighting? Because yeah, it's messed up. Yeah. And in a weird way, because one thing about that story is he keeps repeating that he thinks the monster likes him mm-hmm. of like, I, I think we have a communication, I think. And in a weird way, that so reminds me of so many lower class Trump people mm. of like, no, but he likes me. He, I, I get him. He gets me like, no, he, he does. Like he is just scamming. Like mm. he's a snake salesman. Like he doesn't care about you at mm. all. Like, and I know people have always been like that with the royalty too. Like, look how people worship the queen of like, she loves us. She takes care of us. She cares for us. And I really kind of think that's the statement he's making with this guy who's very much at the very bottom of everything, very low class compared to everyone else being like, no, I I think the monster likes me. I think we have a communication. Now the, the last story is a contender for my favorite issue of this because it really like what goes from showing you like how depraved the other side is to showing also the level of like callousness that the invisibles exude themselves and it's this story that just follows one of the grunts or like some kind of foot soldier for the 
the Harmony House eventually. Like we see the soldier, we see his personal life, all the tragedies and successes he suffers, and like all the low points of their life and what's led them here, and like why are they doing private security for a really sketchy organization that's like doing weird things to teenagers and like just when things are maybe about to go their way in life or they're going to turn themselves around someone's breaking into the house and or someone's breaking into harmony house and their last words as they're getting shot by this invader match up directly with one of the grunts we see get murdered in issue one and we hear king mobs kind of gallows humor as he like he's like this isn't happening and king mobs like it's happening <laughs> and like it's really changes shapes the way you look at this character who seems like above it all and like our hero oh yeah like i i'm really appreciative of like even the seemingly faceless stormtrooper grunt grants willing to humanize here and like okay like these are people that are in these situations for a reason like it's not just someone that's pure evil or like choosing to live this life that's now losing theirs to a war that they didn't even realize they were fighting yeah and it circles back perfectly it bookends everything and i love these types of books that it's not one main story it's a whole bunch of little beautiful human moments that together really define a theme really define a mood and someone asked you what the book is about but like it's so you like after you finished it you might not know what happened but you know how you feel you know it, it gives you this really powerful feeling and it's very much like the world the things just keep cycling you know bad things happen good things happen and we just keep always fighting even though we don't really know what the battle is and it's beautiful as for future volumes uh do you have any predictions is like where you think you see the story going or any reveals anything like that oh i just want to go with the flow mm. and and see what he throws at me i mostly want to see where his centipede's gone because mm. the, this was written in the 90s and i'm sure they're at a different place now than they were then and i'm really happy i'm really excited to, to see where they are now one mistake i think a lot of readers make is expecting to see something written by that person that wrote the thing we really liked, but that person has changed. You know, we mm -hmm. are always changing and I would, I can't wait to see what they've evolved into. And if I try to guess or kind of like figure out what's going to happen, then I might just be disappointed. So I just want to be surprised. Yeah. I haven't really read many of their modern comics, but I, I do like reading what they post on Substack or like, I'm almost now more in tune with the behind the scenes of their current or later comics more so than I am the comics themselves. And anytime it's been brought up, it doesn't sound like they have any interest in revisiting the invisibles. And like, I know the 2012 apocalypse is something that is like a major plot point. So like, I think maybe that's kind of where they feel like the story is concluded, but like, I very much would like to see this world revisited or like, I want to see what this looks like with, a modern queer lens like mm -hmm. i mean a lot of people can try and put down the most recent matrix movie but like i thought just exploring what that world looks like when you get to revisit it now in a culture that's like willing to have discussions about queerness and like now from people who know so many different types of people and like have lit like spent their life 
in the community rather than in the closet. Like, I, I want to see what story or like what groups of invisibles that would be writing now. So like, I know it wouldn't be the same. A lot of people would be just like dismissing it as not as good as what they remember liking. But I think there's definitely room for a fascinating invisible story to be made today. Yeah, same. And I would actually really love if he did do it like Lana did the new uh, Matrix movie of ensuring that it's for the people that it was originally intended for. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of almost an FU of sorts and something very self-referential like they did. I would love to see them put themselves more into it than just King Mob. Maybe King Mob beats Grant or something. Like that goes back to like some of Grant's earliest works. Like one of the first books they got for DC was Animal Man. And I know that's how that book ends is Animal Man like hops dimensions to ours and meets his maker. And like after he's lost his family and suffered all these personal tragedies, like, hey, can you give me a better life? Okay, yeah, let me bring back your family, buddy. And yeah, like. Uh, I, I'm not sure if that's exactly how it goes down. I mm-hmm. haven't gotten to Animal Man yet. But, like Grant Morrison is at the top of my list of like wanting to get into my backlog, but I'm reading so many comics for both this podcast and Giant Size Violence that like, oh, it's hard to get through my reading list. So Invisibles is like what I'm focusing on. And then I'll expand my lens to their other major works and some of mm-hmm. the modern works after this. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I, oh, that sounds great. And a lot of people are doing the meta thing now, but I think Grant Morrison, I think they would do a wonderful job of it mm. because, I mean, I think they were kind of doing it before it was as cool as it is now or as popular as it is now. And it, it would be really nice to see them just go full meta with something mm. like the Invisibles. Yeah. Now, do you have a favorite issue from this trade? Uh, my favorite issue is actually the windmill issue. Where uh, they're all... Mm-hmm. Go ahead. No, I wanted to specify which one. I can't remember which one it is. It's the one where they're all in the windmill. Robin is at the church and she finds like, uh, Oh, John the Baptist head, John the Baptist head. Meanwhile, they're fighting like Orlando. Mm. Um, while they're all tied up in the windmill. It is a really good tying together of all of their action scenes and stuff. Yeah. I think that's issue eight where all the time travel stuff's coming to a head, but mm. yeah, I like that one a lot. I think my favorite would probably be issue four just because the imagery and the nature of like how the shape of reality is revealed to Dane, like really stuck with me. And like, I don't know if I'll put it in this episode as mentioned, but like I had a dream the next day or something that felt closer to like a vision. Like I was witnessing something more than like dreaming and manifesting things or like, you know, every night it was, a little sick and it was like i was seeing the world through the eyes of another person and flying almost like a bird or someone in a plane and i was reeling from reading issue four the night before and like i can tell like things have been a little bit different or i've been like i've been having more vivid dreams and like mental imagery ever since then so i'm like okay this is where i was sold on invisibles and this is probably the single issue that's going to make me keep reading The one fear I have, though, is like, since I'm seeing this shape me a little bit, I'm worried that if I finish the Invisibles, I'm going to (laughs) die. I'm afraid this is some kind of weird prophecy thing that like, once I finish the Invisibles, that marks my death date. So maybe I'll leave like the last issue unread until I'm ready to shed this mortal coil. 
I kind of have the same thing with Proust and his <laughs> series of books. So I feel you on that. Yeah. <laughs> but on that incredibly morbid note, I think we'll bring it to a close here. But yeah, I want to say thank you again, Ari, for joining me for this deep dive into the Invisibles and for humoring me by giving the book a chance. I don't know, you gave me just so much more cultural context that really expanded my enjoyment of this and really helped me appreciate this or like call out some of the great things this book does that lie well outside of my area of expertise. Well, I'm, I'm glad my info dumping could be useful and I hope it wasn't annoying. I try to avoid info dumping as much as I can. But yeah, I'm glad I could participate. And thank you so much for recommending the book and mm -hmm. uh, giving it to me to read because I, I really enjoyed it. Both this and Saga have become like up there in my top 20 or so of favorite books of all time. So thank you. Yeah, no, I'm really glad you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed your info dumps on it. <laughs> you're on a podcast these things are literally made for info dumps so you know <laughs> if you if you want a short podcast don't come here folks then especially for the book book ones <laughs> we're going to be long-winded deal with it <laughs> Love but it. if the listeners at home have requests or recommendations for comics or creators you'd like us to cover in the future you can send them our way on social media you can find us on the Transcending Comics Instagram and Facebook page, on Twitter as at Transcend Comics, or email us at transcendingcomics at gmail.com. We'd like to thank you for giving our podcast a chance and give a special shout out to Radio Parade for designing our logo. Our intro and outro music this week is A Little Soul and You've Been Starring by Carlson. Check out their new single on Spotify, iTunes, and most other music platforms. Join us again next week as we continue transcending boundaries and exploring the colorful world of trans, non-binary, and genderqueer representation in comic books of all kinds. As the curtains fall on this episode of Transcending Comics, remember that comics have the power to inspire change in countless worlds, including our own. Keep reading, keep writing, and keep transcending. 